but once you actually like start thinking through how you can improve some of your habits, it becomes really relevant and really applicable. So one of the things that, that James talked about in Atomic Habits is making it obvious, making it attractive, making it easy, and making it satisfying. And so that was kind of his go-to mantra. Anytime you're trying to build a habit, you want to try to accomplish each one of those things. So making it obvious is all about recognizing the cue that puts your habits in motion. Welcome to the Brands for a Better World podcast, the podcast that brings you the stories behind people and products, building a more just, healthy, and regenerative future for us all. Tune in weekly, and together, we'll learn why these better products and brands were created, how they're helping fix broken systems, and what you can do to support them. My hope is that you'll discover some new brands to love and get some sparks of inspiration that will help you live your best life. Hi, I'm your host, Gage Mitchell founder of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow to scale their impact. This podcast is one way we do that. If you like the show, please help it grow by leaving ratings and reviews on your podcast app and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Maybe this will be one of them. On this episode, I'm speaking with Nick Budden, founder and innovation director of Flavor Forward, about the psychology of behavior change, how you can use the principles to make positive impact in your life, and how brands can inspire life-changing behaviors through their products and marketing. Yeah, so my name is Nick Budden. I spent the first decade-ish of my career doing strategy and innovation for big food brands like Unilever, Yum! Brands, and Blue Bunny. COVID forced a bit of self-reflection for me, and when I was looking back on my career over that period of time, I really realized I was proud of the business results, but not as proud of the food itself that we were making. The world probably doesn't need more buckets of fried chicken and candy-loaded ice cream bars and things (laughs) like that. So about two and a half years ago, I decided to hang out my shingle, started my company called Flavor Forward Strategy, and now I help founder-led brands create healthy, sustainable food innovation. And I've had the privilege of helping brands like Good Pop, Skinny Dipped, and Tropicana stretch their brand into new categories to help increase their impact. Nice. Uh, You've got that pitch nailed. I like it. (laughs) And I also love the name too, because as a fellow foodie, <laughs> I love flavored forward food. So like using that as a name for your uh, consulting business is brilliant too. It's like it positions you well, but also makes me want to want to eat whatever you're making. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like it. With that said, today you and I are just going to geek out on behavior design for a little bit, because I've been seeing some of your posts on things like the BJ Fogg behavior model, which... As I mentioned to you, I got to do his boot camp a handful of years ago. It's been a while now, maybe even like 10 years ago or something. I got to go do a boot camp and learn about the model. And I've been kind of applying it to a lot of what I do and read his newer book, Tiny Habits, and I've read Atomic Habits and all these kind of things about how we can kind of work with the way our brains and our bodies work to change our behaviors instead of working against <laughs> our our natural tendencies. So I love the subject and I'm excited to geek out with you on it. So let's just dive in. Let's first talk about a little bit about behaviors work. So since it's a little more fresh in your mind, can you describe the BJ Fogg behavior model? Yeah, I'll do my best, but it sounds like you actually learned from the master directly as just a guy who picked up his book. So if you have more, feel free to, to jump in and supplement. But my understanding of BJ Fogg's model of motivation is that behavior happens when there's motivation, ability, and a prompt. So to break that down a little bit more, behavior happens when we have motivation. So there's a clear sense of how much we want to do something. When we have the ability, 
So how easy it is for us to do something and a prompt. So we have some sort of cue to do the thing. Basically, in a really, really short, snappy version, if we want to do something and it's easy to do, we do it. If we don't want to do something and it's hard to do, we don't do it. <laughs> and if we only have one or the other, it kind of depends. So sometimes we can be motivated enough to do hard things. So that works in a pinch, but it often doesn't last. What often is a little bit more reliable is really making things easier for us to do. That tends to be more reliable. It tends to be the smarter approach to behavior change. And a lot of brands are employing that sort of logic when they're, they're rolling out business models or new products or things like that. It's all about making it easier for us to do hard things or just making it easier for us to do things at all. Yeah, I love it. That's a good, good summary in that uh, as part of the boot camp in order to graduate, he had us explain it back to him <laughs> as clearly as possible. And I feel like you did a great job. You, you could have gone through the boot camp and, and gotten a, a <laughs> thumbs up from BJ on that explanation because it's a good summary that kind of gets the formula across, right? And then I think the way I like to, I like to also just give people examples too to kind of paint that picture. I think you started leading that way with like, if it's hard to do and we don't want to do it, then we're just not going to do it. But, but like the in-between points is where it gets confusing, right? Like we all have been in situations where we really, really want to do something, but we just can't bring ourselves to do it. Maybe that's like, you know, our, our 2024 resolutions of I want to get back in shape and train for a marathon. And then like day 12 comes by and you're like struggling to put on the shoes and get outside and run maybe because you bit off more than you can chew and the, the behavior is really hard. So when your motivation dries up, you're going to quit that habit. That's why all those gym memberships are or the gyms are packed in January 1st and then empty January 30th. <laughs> because like, We bit <laughs> off more than we could chew and our motivation dried up. So to your point, like motivation is comes and goes. It's kind of fickle. We can't rely on it. Like we might have a spike of motivation today and then zero motivation tomorrow. So, well, I think a lot of behavioral uh, psychology or behavioral models tell you, you need to increase motivation to get behaviors to happen. What I like about BJ Fogg's model is that it, kind of is grounded a little more in reality. Like, A, it's hard to increase people's motivation. You have to do all these different techniques of gamifying or whatever else. But then even if you do, they might only be motivated for 30 minutes and then lose it, right? So so to your point, like finding ways to make the desired behavior easier is a much more reliable strategy or making a clearer prompt. Like maybe it is easy and you do want to do it. You just keep forgetting to do it. So like finding a way to remind yourself is also a good tactic. I think that's exactly right. And I think if we're thinking about, I'll just run with your your marathon example, for an example, there's a lot of goals out there that are very outcome-oriented goals. And those are great to get you to a certain point. And you can get up to that marathon race day, but what tends to happen as soon as the marathon is over? It's like, you've reached your goal, you're done with it. It's just kind of done with that habit. You might go on to something else and there's, there's no real reason for you to train. So you were super motivated to get to that point, but you didn't actually change anything about the process itself. And so that's why process goals are so important and why I think it's really important for individuals to employ them, for businesses to employ them, really anyone to employ more process-oriented goals because it changes your ongoing habit. And at a certain point, it starts to feel so easy that there's no reason to stop. I really like his his logic where it's about making things something easier to do rather than just ramping up motivation in a pinch. Right. I think this was more in his book, Tiny Habits, than in the boot camp, if I remember correctly, because I think he put in another 10 years of research in or something before he wrote the book. But one of the things that kind of stood out to me in the book is building momentum and motivation along the way by getting 
starting small and getting early wins, like that just makes us feel good about this new behavior, right? Whereas I think a lot of people are like, you know, we'll stick with the marathon. I want to train for a marathon, so I better go run 10 miles today. And it's like, okay, you might be able to do that today, but then it's going to be really hard. Or maybe you like try to go do it and you only get five miles in and then you're like mad at yourself. Or maybe you say, I'm going to run every day this week and you only get in three days and then you start beating yourself up and that like demotivates you and you start like losing interest in the goal. Whereas if your goal is like, you know what, I'm going to put on my running shoes and I'm going to walk to the mailbox every day this week. (laughs) If I do any more, cool. If not, at least I achieved my goal. Well, hopefully, you know, you can at least put your shoes on and walk to the mailbox and then you're going to feel pretty good about it. And you're going to be like one of those days, probably be like, you know what, I'm just going to do a little lap around the block. And then you're going to feel really good about that. And then you're going to kind of like layer on more and more to the behavior over time. And that's not only a more successful method because you made it small enough to be able to bite off and, and keep up with, but it also builds those wins, which motivates you. Everyone likes a good win. Everyone likes to feel like they're accomplishing what they set out to. Everyone likes to see that progress of like checking off the days on the calendar that you've run versus all the gaps, you know? So I think that's one thing that he brought up a lot in the book, which is just finding ways to celebrate the behavior whenever you do it, as cheesy as it might be. Like even if it's literally just put on my shoes celebrate that. seems cheesy. All you did was put on your shoes, but celebrate it because it helps. Like it just kind of is a nice mental hack. I think that's something that I don't remember coming across really strongly in the workshop or in the boot camp, but in the book, that was something that really stuck with me. Yeah. I think it was both BJ Fogg and James Clear that talked about downscaling habits and making it feel really, really easy to the point of almost like being ridiculous to the average person. It's like, this is so simple. Why would I ever do something this, this simple? I think it was James Clear. He's the example of going to the gym and like you just go to the gym for five or 10 or 15 minutes and then you have to leave. Like you tell yourself mentally, I'm just going to show up for this five to 15 minutes and then I have to leave no matter what. But so many people would think like, why would I cut myself short? I could actually put in a workout. I've already done the hard work of getting here. And that's exactly the point is once you've already overcome all of the barriers that it takes to get you to the gym, it's much easier to just continue to do the thing. And you realize you've already kind of come over that inertia and you actually just do the thing because you're already there and you might as well. And then in time, you know, heart like feed the habit, let it grow organically. And and that's a much more reliable way to build habits. So whether it's like doing five pushups or spending five minutes in the gym or just putting on running shoes or walking to the mailbox, whatever it is to just get you moving a little bit, the smaller steps to get you started is really what it takes. And then you start building frequency and you, you build that muscle, both mental muscle and physical muscle, probably more mental than anything else in that case. But once you, you get a little bit more comfortable with creating that habit, it's much more likely to stick and grow and to become something that's a bit more consistent and part of your identity and, and all of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great note too. It reminds me, I, I don't remember exactly how it was phrased in the Atomic Habits book, but I seem to remember there was a lesson about like consistency over intensity where just as you were saying, it's better to like show up at the gym and just show up. Even if you just like walk in, high five someone and walk back out, it's that showing up for yourself and that consistency of the habit, knowing that you're going to stick to it no matter what is more important than how hard of a workout you got in while you were at the gym, right? Like, and I think a lot of people think of it the opposite. Like if I'm going to show up at the gym, I better make it worth my time and really work out. And that's what I'll be proud of. Not the fact that I just showed up for myself and came to the gym and maybe just did one exercise and left because I'm tired. So that's a good good note too. That's like a good hack for yourself is 
you know, maybe that goal of running around the block just feels like too much right now, but show up for yourself. Just put on the shoes and go to the mailbox. It's it's okay to have like a lower or slower day, but show up for yourself because that's what builds the consistency and like creates a habit, right? Yeah, James Clear did a really nice job of this when he threw out this mantra of never miss twice. Like you can miss one day. We're all human. We're all going to mess up. Little things in life are going to come up. It'll throw us off occasionally. But the key is that you don't miss twice. So that second day, make sure you're getting there. You're keeping the habit alive. You're showing up. I think Duolingo actually does a great job of this because they actually give you like this streak freeze and it's free and it's basically like, okay, no harm, no foul. You missed a day. It's okay. Get back on it. And as long as you get back on the second day, the habit's still very much alive. And so he was really, really big on just like consistency over intensity. Yeah. I, and I think, you know, just to get personal here, I feel like that's usually where I fall short. Like I get the idea of making the initial steps easy, et cetera, but then I'm not by default a creature of habit like i i like change i like variability etc and then i also because of that don't have a very regular schedule like my the amount of work i have to do or what what time my meetings are when i'm ending work or starting work or what i'm doing on weekends or whatever it's just all variable all the time so it's hard for me to like put in clear prompts and it's hard for me to like not miss a day or two and then once i do i do get deflated and i'm like well i missed a couple days i'll I'll try to catch back up next week but then next week's just as chaotic as this week and then like i just months go by and i'm like oh crap i forgot about that behavior i was trying to build because (laughs) because i missed like a couple days and then told myself i'd put it off so i think that's one thing i really personally need to work on is got it down like make make it a small habit create a prompt so on and so forth but it's like that consistency where do i place that prompt and how do I make myself or get myself to just show up, even if it's not the intensity I want, but just show up in some way for the habit? Yeah, exactly. Having read, I think you read both of those books, but having read both, anything else like stick out to you that we should talk about before we dive into kind of applying some of these things? Yeah, so I think just the general way that habits actually work was something that really stood out for me with within James Clear's book. And I think it's probably relevant to folks as we come into 2024 and people are thinking about things like New Year's resolutions and, you know, making a lot of small or potentially large changes in life. And so this really stood out to me. He talked about like the simplest model I've ever seen for how habits work. And it's basically just four parts. So you've got a cue, there's craving, there's a response, and there's reward. Charles Duhigg, he wrote The Power of Habit. He had it even simpler. It was just key routine reward. So it's it's very, very straightforward in that sense. But once you actually like start thinking through how you can improve some of your habits, it becomes really relevant and really applicable. So one of the things that, that James talked about in Atomic Habits is making it obvious, making it attractive, making it easy, and making it satisfying. And so that was kind of his go-to mantra. Anytime you're trying to build a habit, you want to try to accomplish each one of those things. So making it obvious is all about recognizing the cue that puts your habits in motion. I'm going to give a bunch of examples here. So if you're hungry, that can be a biological cue. It's you're hungry, so I need to go find something to eat. So the cue is hunger. Going to find something to eat is more of the routine or more of the response to that cue. If you have an empty plate in front of you and you're getting food ready, one thing that you could do as an example to eat a little bit better is just fill half of it with plants or plant-based food. And then you already know when you see an empty plate, like half of your plate has to go toward eating fruits, veggies, whole grains, things like that. If you're craving something sweet, you can recognize that craving and actually reprogram your brain a little bit and improve your routine as long as it still delivers on a similar reward. So if you want something sweet and you recognize that you want something sweet, and even more specifically, if you recognize that you want something that's like chocolatey, 
you could reach for dark chocolate rather than like a milk chocolate. And you've already made a really simple tweak that's likely to deliver on what you're actually craving. If you're craving something fruity, eat actual fruit. Don't eat like trash fruity candy, like go eat actual fruit. That's what your brain wants. So it's really recognizing, you know, kind of what the end of the chain is, that reward that you're craving and actually, you know, changing your response or your routine to actually deliver on that thing. Making it attractive is another really interesting one. To me, this is all about understanding dopamine and how our brains actually work. And when we get these hits of dopamine, a lot of people think that we get hits of dopamine when we do something, and that's true. But we also get a hit of dopamine when we anticipate doing something. So a really nice way to think about dopamine is that it's also about craving. So if you can associate a very specific reward with a very specific action, you're more likely to make those things consistent. So if you think of like Pavlov's dog, anybody who's taken a psych 101 class, you hear the bell, the dog gets a treat. That's kind of like the conditioned response that Pavlov was trying to teach this dog. And so you ring a bell, get a treat, ring a bell, get a treat. But eventually the conditioned response and the dog became so strong that ringing a bell was enough to make the dog drool because it anticipated the treat that was going to come. And in a lot of ways, our brains work the same way. So it's all about understanding kind of those, those relationships that we have with dopamine. Make it easy is all about understanding that people are fundamentally lazy. And I think that's like a little bit of a harsh way to say it, but it's really true. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It has been adaptive for us in the past. We're lazy. And because we're lazy, it helps us save energy and we can reallocate our attention and our energy to other things. So we're able to multitask because we're saving mental energy and we're doing something else back of our mind. Often where we run into problems with things that are too easy is that often the easy thing is the thing that's bad for us long-term. So we can make it easier to do the things for us that are good for us, or we can make it easier for us to do things that are bad for us. It's a pretty obvious choice. I think you want to do more of the things that are good for you long-term. He also talked about friction, which I think is a really important word when you're thinking about behavior change. If you want to do more of something, you want to reduce the friction. You want to remove the number of steps between you and that goal. If you want to do less of something, you should be increasing the friction or adding steps. So one example of this could just be how you set up your fridge at home is one example. My guess is like the really delicious, like terrible for you snacks are probably the most accessible, which is completely backwards when you think about behavior change. Instead of hiding your produce in like that drawer behind the door, like you should make that more front and center, you know, cut your veggies and fruit and like stuff like that, get it more easily accessible. So you have to like actually move that out of the way to get to the snacks. It'll be more likely that you'll actually stop at the good stuff before, you know, rummaging all the way to the the bottom drawer for the bad stuff if you set things up intentionally. And then the last one, make it satisfying. To me, this is all about understanding rewards. And the way that, that James Clear described this is that behavior that gets immediately rewarded gets repeated. And on the other hand, when we're punished, we tend to avoid that behavior. So as a species, like we're just really, really bad at delaying gratification. But we found there's there's a lot of really good research against this, that the people who are good at delaying gratification, they often employ coping mechanisms. Like they'll they'll actually like hide from whatever stimulus they don't want to be exposed to to help them. Like there was the marshmallow test, which is a very famous so, social study where they, they basically sat kids down and said, you could have one marshmallow now or you could have two marshmallows later. And then they just ran the clock, <laughs> let the kids see how long they could wait to, to resist that marshmallow. And the kids who usually made it the longest were the ones who were employing some of these coping mechanisms, like trying to actually physically move the marshmallow away from them, or they were covering their eyes, or they were distracting themselves with some other activity, or they were just like turned around and facing in the corner. They're trying to avoid the marshmallow wherever they could. So I think that's, that's also something that's, that's pretty important to think about is 
we want to be better about delaying gratification. And sometimes we can create systems to help us delay gratification or systems to help us feel some sort of progress, even when something isn't immediately realized. It's another really big way. And he actually had a quote that I definitely want to share because I think it's really well articulated. He said, the vital thing in getting a habit to stick is to feel successful, even if it's in a small way, because that feeling of success is a signal that your habit paid off and that the work was worth the effort. And I think that's so indicative of the habits that I'm able to change in myself. They're the ones where I feel like I'm actually trending towards an improvement and I can see physical or some sort of visual improvement. Those are the ones that tend to actually work. And the ones that don't are the ones where I just feel like I'm putting in the work and I'm not seeing anything for it. And it goes week and week and week before anything actually comes of it. Those are the habits that are really hard to to actually land. So that's kind of it in a nutshell from what I took from James Clear. Make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. If you can do those things, you're probably ahead of most. And I think, again, I I get stuck at the reward part. And maybe it's just I'm not good enough at rewarding small stuff or where I think it's actually falling for me is my brain works maybe a little differently than most where my reward is often breaking routine or doing something different. For example, throughout the day, I'll probably end up having five to 10 different beverages because that's partly the reward for me is I want something different in my mouth. So I might start with some mate and then go for some coffee and then have some chai and then have a bubbly water and then like it'll just kind of like change throughout the day. So I think that's the, the problem is when I try to set a habit, that's usually more routine and not variability. So like the reward for me is the change is the breaking of the habit. So I think that's where I get stuck up is I need to find not stuck up, but like stuck in trying to create behaviors is I need to find a way to make the routine itself enjoyable. And maybe it's to your point, the progress that I'm making, but even that to to my brain gets boring, like, you know, weeks and weeks of progress. It's like, okay, great. I'm continuing to make progress, but now I'm really bored of making progress. (laughs) I need something different. So that's, I need to find ways to hack my own brain, but I think maybe some other people out there will listening to this will kind of resonate with that. But I know some other people who are just like great at habits because the routine itself and like, again, consistency and, and reducing friction by making it an obvious choice where it's just their default mode works really well for them. But like, like I've got a friend who's crushed it doing like a, you know, he started out doing a, I'm going to run one mile every day for a certain period of like a hundred days. He's been doing that for like five years now or something and like <laughs> kept kept up the routine. And it's not only just one mile, like he'll sometimes go longer, but a mile is the minimum. There is absolutely no way I could personally, like the way my brain works, there's no way I could go run a mile every day. I would have to like say, okay, I'm going to run a mile today. Tomorrow I'm going to do parkour. The next day I'm going to do rock climbing. The next day after that I'm going to do whatever. And then even if I repeat that same system, two weeks later I'm bored, right? <laughs> So for me, I got to find a right like flexibility in the behavior that and balance that with reward and still make it easy. <laughs> I don't know, it's maybe ADHD problems or something, but that's where I get hung up. Like it sounds like you've had a little bit more success putting some of these behaviors in place. So I guess of all that, like what what's the one thing that really like clicked for you that's helped you personally set some better behaviors? I got to ask a question, then I'll come back to that if you want. Have you tried (laughs) just changing it up based on like time of day or day of week? So for example, like you were, you're talking about your, your beverage habit, how it kept changing. Have you tried like 
I'm going to have this at two o'clock and this at six o'clock and this at nine o'clock. Like, have you tried something like that to implement it and see if it sticks for you? I'd be curious to see uh, if, if that plays Sort out. of like I've had like weeks where I'll, I'll go for a few weeks with a particular order. Like, okay, I'm going to start off every day with mate. Cause I feel a little bit better after that in the morning. And then like after lunch, I'll have my coffee. Cause then like, I don't know. I like the, the, thicker mouth feel and the stronger taste of the coffee after my mouth is saturated with the meal that I just ate, you know, like there's hacks like that, that I'll stick to that for a little while, but then, you know, let's say three weeks into it or something, all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of bored of mate and coffee. I want to, I just want bubbly beverages or kombucha or, you know, it kind of shifts. So I think for me, I've got to like find a way to again, weave in the variability. Like it doesn't have to be a specific beverage. I just need a beverage at this time of day or, or to do this behavior. Like I often use beverages to get myself to be productive. So for example, maybe I'm putting off writing this proposal or something like that. And I'm sitting here and like doing all these procrastinations thing, poking around on LinkedIn or checking email or whatever. And then I'm like, Oh, I really got to do this proposal. So I got to hack myself to get into it. So I'll Say, okay, I'm going to put on some background music to distract my brain a little, and I'm going to get a tasty beverage, and that'll give me the motivation I need to like get in and start working. And once I start working, I'll, I'll like hyper-focus for like four hours until the proposal's done at that point, but I just needed to get myself to start. So sometimes like some variability, some surprise reward up front kind of helps me dive in to the process. Yeah, love that. You're probably a, a variety pack brand's best friend i would say <laughs> if you have something where it's got six varieties in it then you can change it up whenever you want that's, that's probably something out there there's another thought that randomly came to mind old school crossfit this is like back when i was still in high school they used to do this i don't know if they still do but they they had like a website and they would send out a different workout based on the day and the idea is like you're subscribed to crossfit you're all in on the idea but today you're just going to do like 200 pull-ups and 20 burpees like that's just going to be the day and then the next day you'll get a completely different workout i feel like that would be a perfect fit for for you and how your brain works and it would keep you like active and plugged into that one but it still give enough variety to hopefully like change it up enough for you to give you that novelty yeah yeah that sounds like it would probably be a good fit again assuming they've got enough variability within there because if it's just a different order of the same exercises Maybe not, but if it's like pretty different exercises, because I've done stints where I get pretty good at like, okay, I've got like three weeks straight of doing my yoga and then I run out of videos that I have not bored of (laughs) or whatever. And I like go try to find some other yoga teacher online or something like that. But then that's friction. And then I got to go find somebody new and then I got to find a class and then I got to find whatever. And it like breaks the habit because I run out of novelty, I guess, or workout apps. I've had the same problem. Like they have 50 different like routines, but it's really just a different combination of the same 10 exercises. <laughs> so I get a little <laughs> bit bored and have to move on. But anyway, yeah. So uh, enough about my therapy session here. Was there any specific hack that you found that works really well for you? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one for me, it's actually another book. So to throw another author out there and another book out there, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler wrote a really good book called Nudge which was all about these little nudges to improve our our behavior. And one idea that they threw out there was about environmental design, like how we actually design the space that we live in in a given like day-to-day moment. That's something that's really stuck with me. And in particular, they also talked about defaults. And so what I started to recognize in myself is like, if I go into a certain space and I know what my default behavior is going to be there, 
I'm able to perform that much better. So like I've completely stopped reading in bed. I don't read in bed at all. I read on the couch because that's like the place where I'm unwinding. I've got like my little home office set up also in our gym. So to me, this is like work zone. So now I can come in here and like bang something out of my keyboard or, you know, like I'm actively working out on our, our Peloton, which is also in here too, or I'm doing weights. Like this is the the room for work. Like I'm completely plugged in in this space. When I'm going for a walk, I'm completely switched off. I, I occasionally don't even bring my phone. So like, I'm just like in the moment, hanging out with my dog and my girlfriend and we're catching up on our days. It's been really, really good for my own brain, just having a little bit more like regiment related to the environment that I'm actually in. And I found that that's actually caused like a lot fewer intrusive thoughts. Like I'm able to stay in work mode when I'm in work mode. I'm able to stay in relax mode more when I'm in relax mode and I'm able to sleep better because of it. So environmental design defaults, all of those things are are actually actually like working for me and changing my life because of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I think that probably works for a lot of people and also part of like why personal care became like both a big concern and hard to follow sometimes for people during the pandemic when this work from home all of a sudden became a thing because all of a sudden our default mode was broken. We would have this, you know, commute into work where we transition our brain to from home life to work life. And then when we're at work, we pretty much only work when we're at that office. So like, that's easy. That's the default mode there. And then when we come home we would be done with work hopefully and just get to focus on like the kids or cooking or your partner or you know your hobbies whatever but then when work from home happened and all those environments got mushed together people had to get real creative like you're saying like okay (laughs) when i'm at home because i'm home all the time now like work is home and family is home and hobbies are home when i'm at home i've got to like divide it based on the rooms so i think that that kind of note you made there of like and i'm if I'm reading, I'm going to do it over on the couch, not in bed. Or if I'm, you know, working, I'm going to be in this room with the door closed. And that means I'm, I'm in work mode. So I like that idea of having, you know, little territories of, of activities. And, you know, when you're in that territory, you do that activity and you try not to spoil it because otherwise it kind of muddies the waters. Nice. I haven't read that book yet. So thanks for that note there too. And Maybe we'll end up uh, following up with a few recaps for like maybe some pro tips for people as they're starting to think about the new habits they want to create for 2024. But let's shift now into what does this mean for brands or businesses? Like now that we kind of have an idea of how behavior works and how you can kind of modify, pull some of these levers to encourage behaviors, how could brands or companies inspire good behaviors for their employees or their customers? What comes to mind for you? Yeah, so I think innovation at its best is ultimately about creating solutions to people's problems. And there's a bunch of products that'll get launched that don't do that, that don't meet that high of a standard. But to me, that's what innovation is all about. How do we actually create solutions to problems that people have? A slightly more academic way to talk about this that you'll probably see thrown around on message boards or from consultants or things like that is about solving unmet needs. And one of the ways that we like to think about that within within innovation as a framework is by looking at triggers and barriers. So um, again, very specific language. I think the concepts are pretty simple. So triggers on the surface are all about understanding what problems people have and the problems that our product can solve. In particular, you're looking for the most frequent and most valuable problems to be solved. So you're looking at things like what moments trigger people to look for solutions, which times of day, who are you with? Are you eating alone or together? 
you might have different types of triggers for food on lunch on Monday than dinner on Friday night, for example. You probably have very specific triggers and cravings for a snack on a weekend. It might be a completely different trigger for a snack if you're on a long hike at 6 a.m. than if you're shutting down the bar at 2 a.m. And, and brands that really understand people and really understand how to create products, understand how to cater to those things and also understand the role that they already play in people's lives. So I, of course, if I'm on a hike, I'm reaching for a cliff bar. If it's 2 a.m. and I'm shutting out a bar, I'm looking at Taco Bell. And, you know, they both meet needs, very different sets of needs, but all, they, they can meet those needs at different levels of, of ability. And I think if you're looking for ripe territory for innovation, you should really be looking for the spaces where needs are not being met very well, where whatever needs people have either don't have solutions or the solutions that are already out there aren't doing a good enough job for people. And... I think the, the deeper you go into the logic of triggers, the more you'll start to automatically think of new innovation solutions based on those things. It's just about having empathy for people and understanding what they're actually going through in that moment, what their life looks like. Interviews are great ways to extract them, sort of focus groups. But beyond that, I mean, there's tons of more rigorous, more expensive methodologies. But at the end of the day, you got to talk to people and understand what they want and what they're actually looking to do. So that's that's a really quick primer on triggers. Barriers are all about understanding what the biggest barriers are to using the product. So some common barriers that tend to come up within the food and beverage industry might be things like taste or price or health or time or availability. And just by saying some of these things out loud, you might be able to start thinking of new products that can solve some of those things. There are different ways to adjust or reposition your existing product to address those barriers too. Those are all great ways to come up with new innovations too. So I'm sure we could jam on a bunch of examples there, but I think the classical CPG way of thinking about some of these things is really to, to reflect on the triggers and barriers that people have within the category that they're consuming. Yeah, I love those notes because it, you know, the most successful brands that we hear about there in the kind of early stage brands or whatever that just kind of blow up out of nowhere, the unicorns are usually ones that have really figured some of that stuff out, right? Like they knew there was a core group of people that were completely unserved by the industry, or there was a specific need that people were looking for that was like not quite hitting it, right? Like, or, or not quite available. Like everyone keeps talking about liquid death these days. So I'll just use that one as an example. Like Nobody needed another bubbly water uh, or another just water in general or, you know, another beverage. There's <laughs> thousands of thousands more beverage brands than the market actually needs. Right. So why did they succeed or why are they succeeding? And it's because not because they knew there needed to be another bubbly water, but they knew there was an audience that was typically handed a beer and maybe didn't want a beer at that moment. Like they're musicians on a stage or a beer and a crappy energy drink or something. So like musicians on a stage and monster energy drinks, the sponsor, and they want you to hold a monster energy drink can while you're playing. Well, not every musician wants to be just pounding sugar all day while they're playing. So a lot of the musicians would dump out the monster drink and fill it with water so they could hydrate or you know maybe you're at a you're on the audience side and you're at a bar and you've had a couple beers already and you want to stay and participate and have a beverage but you don't want another beer at the moment you know so maybe you alternate with a a water or maybe you just don't drink at all but there is no brand that was cool enough to hold on stage or in the audience that was a water or a bubbly water or something like that, right? The, the audience isn't buying Perrier or, <laughs> or you know, <laughs> cool with having an Evian water bottle or something like that. So 
they just created a really cool brand that looked cool in your hand while you were hydrating. So like it was cool to hydrate all of a sudden, right? So that kind of idea of an unmet need is just like there was already water. There was no new product development that needed to happen. It was a brand development. It was making water cool. Yeah, I got to go on a sustainability tangent quick, because if if you look at what Liquid Death is about and where they started, they talk about murder your thirst and death to plastic. But I think the death to plastic part is almost getting lost by like the the really over the top branding that they have, because there is a real gap in the market to actually have a sustainably packaged water brand. I mean, so much of it is just PET, plastic, and fun fact for <laughs> listeners out there, most of the plastic that's been created since the 1950s still exists. And if we look forward to 2050, people are projecting that we'll have more plastic in the ocean than fish by, by weight, which is pretty incredible when you wrap your mind around it. So we, we have all this plastic waste that's out there. There's a real unmet consumer need for a sustainable water brand. And if you actually look to some of the headwinds that the water category is facing, the bottled water category is facing, one of the main concerns that consumers have is around plastic waste. And so even though they're doing it in a really cheeky, irreverent way, there's a real deep, authentic, unmet consumer need for a sustainable water brand out there. And then everything you just said around their branding. I mean, if you look at the category expectation within the world of water, everybody's shouting purity. And then you've got this like punk rock brand that comes out and is screaming quite literally the opposite of purity. They're shouting death. Um, they've got like armless <laughs> Palmer and like these ridiculous, yeah. fanciful, over-the-top flavor names. They're doing so many things, right? And I don't think they get quite enough credit for the sustainability side of it. The branding's awesome and they get all the credit that they deserve on that one, but their sustainability credentials are really important. And then just as a side note, like of course it helps that they're backed by Live Nation and they're already in this space where they're already at concerts and one of this their bigger backers are the people who are actually putting on the concerts. So immediate like hundred percent concert distribution, basically like day one out of the gate certainly helps their case. Yeah. Yeah. But but a good a good note there too is yes the world needs and people want more sustainable packaging. However, there's like five other non-plastic water bottle companies that launched basically at the same time as Liquid Death. Most of them, I can't even remember the name. Like if I saw them, I would be like, oh yeah, I saw them at Expo West. But Liquid Death launched with not just, we're another water or another water company that's trying to be a more sustainable water bottle. They knew that, yeah, people want that, but they're not going to remember that. They're not going to be like that motivated to seek it out. They're not going to become crazy loyalists. They're not going to get 20 million or, you know, however many like social media followers they have off of just that message alone. Right. So what was smart about what they did was they came in with a little bit more substance than we're just going to be a little bit more sustainable than other people. They knew that they had to create a brand that people would jump over backwards to like, get in lines and like wear on a t-shirt or get a tattoo of, but weave in the sustainability. They like baked the zucchini into the cake, right? So it's like, yes, of course it's sustainable, but look how cool it is, right? I think that was a smart strategy because you see so many brands who think that just a small sustainability tweak is going to be enough. But like, if you don't have a great product and a great brand too, then you're going to be forgettable and it's not going to get a lot of traction. So and that's coming from me as a sustainable brand designer. <laughs> like, like I love sustainability attributes, but like they were smart about not making it the only thing that they're differentiating on. Because again, the other brands that are making it the only thing, I've forgotten their name already. <laughs> even though, even though I 
would just found, got got tons of samples from them at trade shows and stuff. I just can't remember the name. Yeah, hundred percent. If if we want to look back on you know the principles behavior change that we already talked about, Liquid Death nails a lot of these. They made it satisfying. They understood what people were looking for on those occasions and made it rewarding. They made it easy. It's already something that's easily to, easy to pass around. It's easy to pass off. It looks good. It's attractive. It it's a good signal of your own brand and your own lifestyle. They made it attractive. They made it obvious. They, they checked all of those boxes. Whereas some of the other brands may not have, for whatever reason, they may have had more barriers that, that they introduced by, by coming up with a higher price point or making it too over the top of branding or not over the top enough of branding. You know, they, they may have fallen short of some of these other behavior change principles. So yeah, totally squares with the conversation we've had so far. And to that point too, I think another thing worth noting is, you know, I think everyone, even the people who aren't quitting alcohol can recognize the fact that always drinking more alcohol or let's just say energy drinks, always drinking more caffeine or sugar is not the best health habit, right? <laughs> so I think what's also important is that they employed all these tactics to improve people's lives in a meaningful way. And the reason I want to make that distinction is when we we're talking about the CPG innovation strategy, pretty much everything you rattled off can be used for evil too. It can be used to sell more unhealthy high calorie low you know nutrition foods that are just super snackable and satisfying and you'll sell a lot of products and you are technically meeting an unmet need of i want something crunchy or or chewy or whatever that satisfies these flavor cravings and and makes me want more like you can solve for bad needs like bad human desires and i think a lot of technology companies fit into this where does anyone need to be spending more time on instagram or facebook or does that benefit their life no probably not in fact everyone would probably benefit from less time however they use tactics like these behavior design or gamification or rewards or motivation to get you to spend more time on the platform and that is making people's lives worse so one of the things that I think is a good kind of way to think about some of this stuff is if you're going to change people's behaviors, like that's kind of like all of business, right? You're getting people to change a behavior, whether it's to hire you or to do a new thing or to like buy your product more frequently than some other product. But how do we use these tactics to make sure that we're making people's lives meaningfully better, not just distracting them in another way or satisfying a an unhealthy craving. Yes to everything you just said. I could not agree more. I think what what has always felt so ironic to me is that there there are these lists out there of where like MBA talent wants to go to become a CMO. And the lists of food and bev brands are always the ones that have like the least healthy products out there. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the best and brightest MBA talent from like Kellogg and Wharton and Harvard, all of them are going to like Coke and McDonald's and like all these products that people like are basically added sugar, added salt, high fat, high sugar. Like it just run down the list of like the public health issues that we're having. And those are the brands that people are going to because they're able to pay the salary that the people want coming out of MBA. But it's fascinating to me because to me, I think the bigger challenge is how do you get people to want something that they don't fundamentally already want? That should be the harder challenge for these 
best and brightest marketers out there to go solve. So instead of going out to work for big soda, you should be going to work for big kale, like figure that challenge out and keep <laughs> that as a true yeah. mark of whether or not you can actually drive behavior change and apply the lessons you took in your MBA. I think that's the, the much harder challenge, and the much more admirable one to go figure out. Right. And <laughs> I love that you said big kale. <laughs> I'm like now picturing <laughs> a giant corporation built on kale. Uh, but that, that kind of makes me think too of ramping your brand that book that kind of like talks about like, oh, it's it's nice that these brands come out and they want to like change our behavior and get us all to want to eat more kale. But you know what? There's a lot of people out there who just don't want to eat kale and they're never going to want to eat kale no matter how crunchy and you know delicious or whatever you make it. Like it's just not going to be the thing that they want. And so I think what triggers, what, what that reminds me of is, again, back to our conversation of how behaviors work, like creating new motivations won't don't necessarily last because you can't rely on it right so like just going out and trying to decide i'm going to motivate everyone to eat cricket protein or eat more kale or whatever great you might be able to boost enough motivation to get them to try the product but you're not going to be there every day when they open their cupboard to be like hey hey, hey, uh, uh, don't don't grab those cheetos grab those kale chips you know like that motivation is not going to last you can't be there to keep that pumping them full of motivation so how do you work with their existing motivations, but then give them a healthier option? Again, back to liquid death. Maybe the motivation of most of their users wasn't a more sustainable package, but the motivation was, I want to drink more water and not look like a loser while I'm doing it or something like that, like holding some crappy other brand. Um, so they knew that that was probably a stronger motivation than the sustainability, but they made sustainability and drinking less alcohol or whatever, easy, right? Like they knew that you wanted some of these behaviors, but they like made it super easy to do that plus more. So like, how do we, again, it's probably better for ultimate behavior change to make a healthier Cheeto than it is to try to convince millions of people to eat kale, right? So like make the Cheeto out of kale and make it just as good, just as crunchy, just as delicious, but hopefully 10 times more nutritious that's a better strategy than trying to convince a bunch of people to adopt a brand new motivation and behavior that they really don't want. You know, like, yes, maybe they want to eat healthy, but it's going to be hard to convince them to eat kale. So that ramping your brand book kind of like riffs, rips on kale all the time of like kale snacks because he personally hates kale. But the point is like, if you're going to come up with a new innovative product, like just be aware of like how much work it's going to be to roll that boulder up the hill, right? If it's going to be something where you've constantly got to be pushing and you've constantly got to be reminding them to try your product and trying to convince them over and over and over, educate them, educate them, educate them. Like that's going to be really difficult to ever grow that brand. Agreed. And I think like, <laughs> I always take the long view on this kind of thing. And when I think about food motivations, like what is a new motivation we have for food? Does that even exist? Is that a thing? Because the, the reasons why people tend to eat are going to be pretty evergreen. We eat because it tastes good. We eat because it makes us feel good or it's nutritious. You know, like the, the consistent motivations that have been in food will, will be around probably as long as our species exists in its current form. So in my mind, you know, there aren't a ton of new motivations out there. It's just a, it's more of a, a reframe on an existing motivation and potentially it's a motivation that manifests differently or there's different solutions to satisfy that motivation, but they, they aren't really going to meaningfully change. And if they do, it's at a very, very glacial pace. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I liked your example earlier of like context setting with 
product innovation is like if you know after going to the bars somebody's going to want some Taco Bell like food well you're probably going to be more successful giving them a healthier more sustainable Taco Bell like food than trying to rewire them to want a cliff bar <laughs> you know so like knowing that use case knowing the innate desire and leaning into that so you don't have to build any motivation use that existing motivation to make the healthier more sustainable choice easy and i think that's that's something that a lot of new founders don't exactly understand is is there they because they were able to change their own behavior they're like well i want to do this for everyone else but like that's going to be a struggle right it's going to be so hard to get everyone millions of people to make that change without you there pumping them up in the background the whole time so as much as i would love the whole world to switch to eating just kale chips all the time or whatever i'm also a realist or you know practical and and i think we should take the easier path build some momentum start them down the healthy path and then like that can be the gateway to eventually eating the kale but like start with the healthier cheeto to get them on that path to get them to get some easy wins to show up for themselves to make some healthier choices that that don't have a trade off and then eventually they're going to be like you know what i feel a hell of a lot better eating healthy you know i'm going to start eating some salads and i heard kale's pretty good for you maybe maybe i'll try that stuff right <laughs> but starting them out with the go run 10 miles today or switch from eating crap all the time to eating kale all the time is just not going to work. They're just going to be frustrated and it's going to, the behavior is going to fail. Yeah. And if you're looking to set a new year's resolution for 2024, I think one of the worst things you can do if you're currently eating the standard American diet is just to try to become a vegan overnight on January 1st. It's just not going to work. It might be fantastic for your health. It's definitely great for the planet. There was even a study out there that showed that we would just switch to a vegan diet. We'd reduce emissions by 75%, which is amazing. But the reality is that only 1% of Americans are vegan and only 4% of Americans are vegetarian. So something about the proposition just doesn't work for 96% of Americans. So if, if you're eating the standard American diet today and you want to improve your diet a little bit in the new year, take incremental steps. It's okay. Maybe try to cut your red meat consumption to once a week. And if that goes well, then maybe scale it up to once a month. And if that goes well, then maybe keep ratcheting down the, the food chain, you know? You could go a little bit further one step at a time, or better yet, just focus on adding fruits, veggies, and whole grains to your diet. It's a small reframe, but addition rather than subtraction tends to work better in our brains. It just doesn't feel like there's as much of we're giving something up versus adding a new behavior. Or even better than that, just focus on making real-time swaps. Like you're standing in the cafeteria and you can have white rice or brown rice, choose brown rice. It's already a close substitute. It's similar to what you wanted anyway. It's a pretty small compromise and it's a big step in the right direction or swap out soda with sparkling water. These close substitutes in my mind are the ones that are much more likely to stick. And if you actually go into the math of it all, um, there's a recent study in Nature that actually confirmed that these small substitutions can make a big difference. And one of the things that they found is that by substituting just 10% of your daily calories from beef and processed meat for things like fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, and select seafood, that would lead to a 33% reduction in a carbon footprint. So even though it's not that full 75% from going fully vegan, I would argue that you could probably get more than two to three times as many people to sign up for a change to just 10% of their diet than to try to get other people to adopt this really strict, rigid vegan diet. Again, not denigrating the vegans at all. I think they're doing amazing things, but it's just not practical for a lot of people on a daily basis. It's much more likely that we take these incremental steps and work your way toward that. 
So yeah, don't try to change everything all at once. It's just not as likely. Yeah, that makes sense. That's why I feel like the concept of meatless Monday, I don't even know who started that, if it was backed by a brand or just like a vegan activist group or whatever, but it's brilliant for all those same reasons because back to behavior design, what do you need? You need a motivation. Well, a lot of people are starting to realize that maybe cutting back on meat will only will be healthier and more environmentally friendly. So like there's kind of a baseline motivation, but then from there, like how do you make it easy and add a prompt, right? Like how do you increase ability and make a prompt? So like going because they want to eat less meat doesn't mean being a vegan tomorrow is going to be easy. No, maybe cutting out meat one day will be easy. Great. They solved the ability part. And then by calling it meatless Monday, that nice alliteration is easy to remember. Therefore, now we've got a prompt because every week, guess what? There's going to be a Monday. And when you hear Monday and you're kind of thinking about eating less meat, then meatless Monday pops into your head. So they've kind of solved the kind of motivation, ability, and prompt all with that one simple campaign. And again, I don't know who started it, but that's kind of brilliant because it is that baby step from, again, you don't have to make a wholesale change overnight cold turkey, you can just make one small change. And I, I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but similar to what you're talking about, even just everyone cutting back on meat one day would make a huge difference, right? And then once you get comfortable with that and start realizing that, you know what, food without meat's still pretty damn good and filling, maybe I'll do it two days, you know? But it's just like, how do we get them started on that path? And I think things like Meatless Monday was a brilliant way to do it completely agree and once you've nailed meatless monday then ramp up to something like weekday veg which is like it's big brother you still have a little bit of room in your life to have some of these indulgences that keep you a little bit connected with culture that don't feel quite so dramatic and speaking of culture there's actually another really good book on this called the blue zones where um, i think it was backed by national geographic they went out and they they looked at some of these traditional diets and they wanted to understand where they want to understand how people who live the longest lived And so the way that they approach this is that they looked at the highest density of centenarians, which are people who live to 100 years and beyond. And some of the blue zones that came out were things like Sardinia, which is just outside of Italy, Loma Linda, which is outside of LA. There was Okinawa, which is another one in Japan. So they they looked at where all these really high concentration areas were of centenarians. And pretty much without exception, they all ate some meat, but these were working class people and they they weren't able to afford meat every single meal of every single day. And so when they did have meat in their diet, it was more around the, these festivals or these really big moments. And it was, it was pretty small portions of meat that they had. And instead, their, their diets looked much more like a big plate of vegetables, a lot of legumes, a lot of beans, a lot of rice, things like that, that are, are pretty inexpensive, accessible, and healthy. And then they also had a, a life that was you know, a bit more hardcore than ours in the sense that they were actually out there doing physical labor it was a much more working class side of things. So they had lifestyle pretty much figured out almost by default. And instead of what we're seeing in America, more of these diseases of affluence, where we have so much access to really rich, indulgent food that we tend to overdo it. And it's just not in line with how our biology works. You know, there's, there's a lot of folks who um, really tend to overdo it because we, we don't really have to face scarcity a lot of the time. And I'm saying this from a very, very privileged position. And I recognize that. But if there's not a famine in the near future, that fat that we're storing up on a daily basis tends not to go away. And so instead, we have to implement some of these things to, to stay healthy on our own and uh, to actively guide our behavior on a day-to-day basis. So yeah, I think you know incremental improvement is really big. We should recognize that we live in a culture that is not like most of the world's culture and certainly not like the longest lived cultures out there and recognize where we currently stand. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. And another note, not food related, but exercise related that stuck out to me with the kind of blue zone studies is that, again, Americans uh, tend to go all in and eat ton- way too much meat or or even on exercise think that we've got to work out for three hours a day, five, seven days a week or whatever, and be like a fitness model in order to like be our most healthy. Whereas in reality, with the blue zones, they're not like pumping tons of iron and running marathons and doing all that kind of stuff. They're typically just like going for walks and gardening, like low level but regular stuff. So back to that kind of James Clear and Atomic Habits kind of philosophy of of consistency over intensity, like that's actually better long term for your health than these crazy intense things we often. Uh, default to in, in cultures like the US where we're like, you know what, I'm not healthy unless I put on like 100 pounds of muscle and get super ripped and whatever. Like, actually, <laughs> sure, maybe short term, that's great. But like long term, you'd actually live longer and be kind of a little bit healthier if you just like take regular walks and, and stretch or whatever, you know, it's like, like those kind of little things. So again, I think that's yeah another behavior design thing is it doesn't have to be intense. You don't have to enter weightlifting competitions, you can literally just commit to going for a walk every day after lunch. And that will go a long way. Like just that consistency of staying active and doing a little bit of physical activity every day is is kind of all you need to really, if your plan is longevity. Sure, if you're an athlete and you're going for performance, different animal, right? But if you're just going for health and longevity, it doesn't need to be intense. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Sardinia, that's another really good example. The, the people that they profiled in that were shepherds more often than not. So they spent their days on their feet, tending their flock and walking around hills. Like that was how they spent their nine to five. For us, something a little bit more practical is like take the stairs, use a standing desk, bike to work, you know, these small interventions that can actually really add up when they're part of our daily lifestyle. It, it just becomes how you operate. And instead of making this really big moment where you're deadlifting 500 pounds for 20 minutes and then you call it a day, you know, work it in, make it a little bit more consistent. Don't be quite so intense about it. Yeah. Like right now I'm probably the least physically fit that I've uh, been in probably most pretty much all of my life. And the major change was I moved from downtown Seattle where I walked to work and walked to all my social activities and walked up and down the f- steps to get to my you know sixth floor apartment or whatever. I went went from that to living in a house in the suburbs where I pretty much just stay in the house most of the time. And if I am going somewhere, I'm sitting in a car driving there because you can't walk to anything from here, <laughs> right? So, like just that simple like removing the twenty minutes of walking you know default that I did every day. Maybe a little bit more if I had a event up Capitol Hill or something. But removing that from my routine means now my back's hurting all the time. I'm putting on weight, like my shoulders are like all these little things that just, just because I'm not like getting up from my desk enough, you know? So that's like one of the (laughs) hacks that I've found is literally just like doing a little bit of stretching and a little bit of walking every day. I feel so much better than when I'm sitting around all the time. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to take a lot, right? I don't have to be out doing CrossFit to be feeling pretty good. Like, sure, I would probably feel a lot more energetic and stuff if I did some of that too. But like for base level health, all I need to be doing is getting up and walking around a little bit more. 
Yeah, you may not have the hills in your life that you once had and longed for, but I would gladly trade six months out of the year being in Chicago here for your Seattle weather. Honestly, <laughs> what I do is during the spring and fall, I love seeing the changing of the seasons. And so that's when I'm outside the most. I'm running and biking then and right now in the winter and come summer when it's super hot and I don't want to be moving at all outside. That's when I'm moving my activity indoor and I'm, you know, I've got my Peloton here and my weights here. That's what keeps me active that way. And as long as the weather allows it and it's not completely miserable, like downpour or ice on the ground, I'm biking to and from like the coffee shop or to client site or wherever, if they're locally here in Chicago, biking is how I get around. So yeah, it, nice. it makes life a lot easier. And I find it a lot more fun personally, rather than being in stuck in traffic, I can kind of weave in and out and it, it makes me a little bit happier of a person, I think along the way. Yeah, that's cool. I know we're already at an hour and should probably wrap up, but there's one other thing I wanted to talk about because because we've been kind of intermixing like, you know, personal tips with brand tips and just general behavior design principles. But one of the things for like brands, because we've kind of talked about like innovation strategy and trying to like actually focus on doing good with some of these tactics rather than just like leaning on their you know, need for stimulation or whatever, and kind of like wasting their time or whatever. We've talked about like making behaviors easier, like instead of trying to convince everyone to eat kale, just make a healthier Cheeto or whatever. So we've covered kind of some of that stuff. But one of the things we talked about a lot with the behavior design strategies was, you know, the reward and celebrating good behaviors. So as a brand trying to encourage better behaviors, like you can make a great product, you can make a cool brand, but how do you show up to like celebrate people's wins when they opt to eat those healthy Cheetos instead of that milk chocolate candy, right? So like, have you seen any good examples of like how brands are showing up, whether it's on social media, on their website, on packaging or whatever, like helping people celebrate those wins? There's one brand that comes to mind and I help them with a little bit of category extension work. I, I hope I do this justice because I think it's a beautiful mission. Good Pop has an attached 501c3 nonprofit called the Pledge Good Foundation. And one of the things that they actually do is they encourage people to make pledges of good deeds that they're going to do. They basically collect all of those. And then I think there's an in-kind donation that's related to it. But I think it's a really cool way of crowdsourcing it, pulling it all together and creating a platform for people to do good. So go check it out if you haven't already. I think it's a really cool mission and I wish more brands did things like that. Hopefully that's what you're looking for. Yeah, that's really cool. I'll definitely check that out. And I was kind of asking it because I'm I'm not really entirely sure how I would answer the question because, you know, I I know a lot of what I do is try to make the right behavior easier. But I think through this conversation or just kind of like thinking about it, like it would be cool to find ways to also help people celebrate or reward. Like with technology companies, it's easier because I think you were mentioning an example earlier of like a an app that gives you rewards for being consistent and showing up every day or rewards for like reading this many hours or finishing this many quizzes or whatever. Like there's nice little badge systems or um thing or like little celebrations on your screen after you finish an exercise or something. That makes sense. But how do you do that for like more of a physical project product instead of a digital product? And I don't know if I have the answer right now, but it's something I'm going to be noodling on. Maybe it's like emails that follow up after an e-commerce purchase and and say, hey, great, you know, did you try the products yet? And you just ask them to hit yes or no. And if they hit yes, maybe like 
they get some sort of cool reward experience or something. I don't know. I'm going to kind of noodle on that. This is a strange one and probably not at all what you're expecting or hoping for. But when I was in grade school, there was a program with Pizza Hut called Book It, where if you would, I think the the program was basically like, if you read one book or X number of books, then you get a free personal pan pizza. <laughs> so as a kid, and just like the sheer amount of books that we've we've dropped over the span of this podcast, I mean, it's probably relevant in my life and it's probably changed me a little bit, but it made me this like voracious reader because I loved that personal pan pizza as a kid and I loved having a pizza party. So I don't know, in a way that probably has changed my behavior and got me to read a few more books and Maybe that's why I'm a little bit of the person that I am today, even though it's ultimately for a pizza brand. Yeah. Well, thank God for pizza, making you kind of a book nerd, because we wouldn't be having this conversation <laughs> right now if it wasn't for Pizza Hut. So I, I think that's a great example, actually, is like reward programs or different things like that that you can do to like, you know, you're, even if it's just as simple as like your 11th, one of these is free to kind of like celebrate you changing your behavior. But like hacking existing systems like reward programs is a good idea or maybe uh, swag or different things like that as kind of rewards if you check off enough of these things or send back these UPC codes or whatever, you'll get some prizes. I think a lot of not so good for you companies have been great at doing those kind of things for a long time. So maybe it's just adopting some of those strategies for better for you brands. Probably a good place to wrap up unless you've got anything burning right now that you want to kind of leave people thinking about like best practice or or something to keep in mind for 2024. This is going to be uh, a, probably a little bit of a strange one, but I'm going to go with it. Try to find a way to make vegetables taste good. If you can do that in 2024, you will be on your journey to health and wellness. There are a lot of ways to do it. You know, you can figure out how to more effectively balance flavor. If the veggies are too bitter for you, try to find a way to balance that with something like salty or sweet or spicy. That could be one way you can do it if you're a home chef. If you'd rather go out to eat on the nights when you're having a really vegetable-forward dish, go branch out, try some other cultures. Um, good example that I just had with uh, my girlfriend for her birthday. Literally last night, we went to a Middle Eastern restaurant. And by the time we got all this like massive spread of food in front of us, we finally realized it was all plant-based and it was not at all by design. It's just how the food is there. So we had things like charred cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and zatar flatbread and baba ganoush and hummus. And it was like this amazing spread in front of us and all of it was plant-based, which was amazing. So there, there are great ways to do it. Try to find a way to make it taste good for yourself, for your family. And I think you'll be a lot better off in 2024 and beyond. Yeah, that's a great note because I think sometimes people are like, well, we need to eat vegetables, but they don't know how to cook vegetables or how to flavor them, right? So a classic example I think is Brussels sprouts. Like, I feel like everyone probably grew up hating Brussels sprouts because you were just served like steamed Brussels sprouts and with nothing on it. But now Brussels sprouts are this like hot you know, a chef inspired food cuisine that you like pay tons of money for an appetizer at a restaurant. What's the difference? They like cooked it and charred it and like caramelize it and put like a, maybe a honey bacon sauce. I don't know, like some, something on it to like really balance out the bitter flavor of the Brussels sprouts. And then the bitterness is actually a value add instead of a negative because it like adds complexity to the meal and it's got a nice mouthfeel, et cetera. So it is often just about like I've, been naturally kind of a plant eater most of my life. I just gravitate towards them and naturally like them. But because of that, like I've had partners who are very meat eater and like we meet in the middle, I'll eat a little bit of meat, but you're going to eat a lot of vegetables too. So the way I've found is exactly what you're saying. Like I've been cooking since I was a kid. So like 
I know that if I, you know, add a little sugar or salt and some fat or acid and then like some cooking techniques, I can make just about any veggie, even if you thought you didn't like it, I can make it taste good, right? So like as simple as like one thing I've been doing recently is some grilled zucchini. I didn't even know I was going to like this this much, but it's literally just all like slice, do thin, long slices of zucchini. And I'll just put like, I think it's a little, what is it? Smoked sesame, uh, toasted sesame oil, a little bit of soy sauce, and then um, I think some garlic powder. Maybe that's it. And I'll kind of like sort of marinate the zucchini in that. And then I'll just, I've got this like flat griddle kind of thing that I'll, I'll use in the house sometimes. And I'll just lay them on there, kind of char them on both sides. And then when you eat those things, oh my God, like it's like better than junk food. They're so freaking delicious. And it's like pretty simple ingredients, kind of healthy fats and a little bit of salt, whatever. It's like not that much to make it amazing. And it's like, it's become one of our favorite side dishes lately just because it's so freaking good. Right. So I think it is just about like learning a few cooking techniques, often like a little charling, charring or caramelizing or roasting goes a long way. And then add a little bit of salt and or sugar, some fat and or acid. Acid is one of my favorite things, a little lemon juice or something like that to cut through like the broccoli. Like it just goes a long way and makes everything so delicious. So I love that tip. I hope people try the zucchini. I got to give you one Brussels sprouts because you brought it up. This is actually a go-to recipe for me. I've never shared a recipe publicly, so this is very strange <laughs> nice. for me. Uh, First time. But literally just Brussels sprouts, salt, pepper, balsamic, honey, oven. That's it. It's amazing. It's a go-to. I cannot get enough of it, and it, it makes me eat vegetables like it's going out of style. So you just like bake them in the oven, or is it broiling so I get like a little char or what? Yeah, just bake it. If, if you get your portions right, there's recipes out there. I'm sure you can find one that's similar too. But yeah, if you if you bake it, time it right, make sure it goes in dry. Like you want to dry the Brussels sprouts. They're not like, if you wash them, you want to make sure they're nice and dry. That'll help them get crispier. But yeah, it's it's literally that simple. Brussels sprouts, salt, pepper, honey balsamic, go. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And for the vegans out there, I guess they could just switch out the honey for some agave or something and it's good to go, right? <laughs> yeah, Totally. Yeah, yeah, or like skip the bacon that I was mentioning earlier. Although that's that's one thing I've, <laughs> I've tried to go vegan a couple times myself, but like there's a few things that are just hard to replicate that I tend to crave. And when one of them is like that flavor slash texture of bacon is hard to like find in, in another way. Unfortunately, one of the Hooray Bacon just announced they were closing down. They were they were getting pretty close with the flavor there, um, not as close with texture, but like it still had a nice crispiness to it. But that's hard to replace. And then aged cheese. Like I get like soft cheeses and other things like that. Like, you know, there's lots of great examples, uh, nuts for cheese or cultured or other um, miyokos, et cetera, that make some really good cheese spreads. But like an aged cheese feels like impossible to replicate that flavor. So like those are a couple things that like made it a struggle for me to go full vegan. But by default, if I didn't have a partner to feed meat, meat to or whatever, I would default to like probably like 98% vegan and then have a couple things that that I have to lean on. And then, you know, I, I like the occasional meat, but I just don't need it the way a lot of other people do. Right on. Sweet. Well, this is a long and fun chat. Glad we got to break this down. Maybe we'll get together and break down. We, we were talking about maybe talking about the policies and and other kind of institutional stuff that could be changed in order to make the world better. But that's for a whole other time. So maybe that's a follow-up. But in the meantime, you already kind of mentioned what you do a little bit, but where should people find you to follow along or learn more? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best place for me. 
Great. Okay. So go to LinkedIn and we'll put uh, a link to your website and other things like that in the show notes too, in case anyone wants to pop over and learn more about what you do and to your LinkedIn profile. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Gage. Yeah. Thanks again for uh, deciding to focus what you do on making the world a little better rather than just selling more stuff. So I really appreciate that about you and love following all your strategic book nerd. Thank you, Pizza Hut content on uh, on LinkedIn as well. So keep doing what you're doing. And, and I love following along. All right. Thanks, Gage. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Nick and his consultancy, go to flavorforward.com. That's flavor F W D.com or search Nicholas button on LinkedIn. That's N I C H O L A S B U D D E N on LinkedIn. If you like this show, remember to help us grow by liking, reviewing, and sharing. If you're new here, don't forget we have over a hundred episodes in the archive. Some might be called Evolve CPG, but it's the same show. So dig in for more goodness. If you consider yourself an impact-driven professional, join me over at impactdriven.community where we're supporting each other's growth as impact leaders. Mm-hmm.